Lord, the last uh, word that we sang in our songs today was your name, Jesus. Lord Jesus, you are not unfamiliar with pain, suffering, sorrow. Lord, you also heard uh, prayers prayed on behalf of Paul as well as Cindy and Wilbert as well. And we not we can't forget uh, just so many things that are happening um, around us in our congregation. Lord, there there is pain, there is suffering, there's difficulty all around him. And Father, uh, medical crews, um, decisions need to be made. Um, but Lord, you know it all. You know what we're going through. So Lord, I pray that that not only with the Kennedy family, but also with each one of us who are going through suffering right now, I pray that you would reach down. And I pray that you would minister to us in places that people cannot go. Lord Jesus, you told us that in the world, you will have, you will have tribulation. That is not necessarily persecution, but it's just because of the way that we are in this world that's broken, it's fallen. And we're all subject to sin. We're all subject to disease. We're all subject even to death. So, Lord, I pray for all of us and all within the sound of my voice that, that Lord, that you would help us. We are in need of you. But, Lord, we rejoice in the fact that 2,000 years ago, you met our deepest need. And you went to the cross willingly in obedience to the Father to show the world that you love the Father. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us today. And, and Lord, I pray that, that as we come together today, that, Lord, those who are far away from you and those who are living in rebellion against you, Lord, that you, could you please melt the hearts of those? Could you please help us come back to you? May every one of us in this room and under the sound of my voice, Lord, may we all with one voice begin to praise you, not to live in rebellion any longer. Lord, sometimes you uh, allow us to go through things to get our attention. But Lord, sometimes we go through things because it's just the natural way of things. And Lord, we live in a fallen world and we do continue to pray for the Kennedys right now and, and pray for Nancy. And thank you, Lord, that, that Cotton has lived a life of faithfulness to you and he's enjoying your presence. I do pray, Lord, for, for Melissa as well, Lord, that you would help her in the loss of her father and also for Katie and Aiden as the loss of their grandfather. Then also for Greg as he is in the middle of all this trying to, to be strong for them. Give him the, the clarity, give him the, the strength that he needs, Lord, to navigate these waters that are very, very unsteady for him. So, Lord, we just lift them up to you. We thank you. And now we pray, Lord, as we go into your word, Lord, about what the gospel really is, how we need you, Lord Jesus, and how we need the truth of the gospel to penetrate our hearts. So, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will be our teacher. And we'll give you thanks. And we'll give you praise for what you will do here, right now, in Jesus' name. So we come a long way now regarding the life of Jesus and concerning the book of Luke, but not so much in the book itself, because we've been in Luke for about 10 weeks. This is the 11th week now, and we've only completed three chapters. <laughs> but we're about 31 years in when it comes to experiencing Jesus through Luke's eyes and Luke's pen, for Jesus was about 30 when he began his ministry. And I say about 31 years because, of course, Luke tells the story of Gabriel visiting Mary before her miraculous conception. 
But we're now at the foothills of what will be an incredible climb to reach the summit, the most beautiful peak, not only in the world, but perhaps even farther out than that. Luke will take the next 20 chapters to cover the life and teaching and, and miracles and death of Christ. And then in the last chapter, we will witness the unspeakable miracle of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Absolute victor over the grave, having conquered and destroyed the one who has the power of death. And we will witness as well the worldwide commission he gave to his Jewish apostles to reach even the Gentile world. And aren't you glad about that? Because I don't know about you, but I'm not Jewish. And I will tell you, though, it's been an amazing ride for me. You know, as I've been diving into Luke's account, his orderly account of the central figure of human history. And I trust the ride has been amazing for you as well. You know, in some ways, my life has been permanently changed through repeated exposure to this document, to this gospel. And the Lord, by his spirit, has been pleased to open my eyes to many things, insights that already and then I'm looking forward to getting more insights as well as I continue to study this book. And one of those things, one of those insights is of all things, the gospel. Now, of course, we're studying a gospel. You know, it's an ancient type of writing, an ancient type of biography, which reads a bit differently than the way that we think of when we think biographies. And, and those who track such things say that Luke's gospel exactly fits this kind of writing. Luke followed the conventions of his day, inspired by the Holy Spirit to help his friend Theophilus to understand about Jesus. And through God's providence, we have the great privilege of studying the life and ministry of Christ written from a Gentile perspective. But when I say gospel, I don't mean the way that Luke uh, laid out his book or the genre called gospel. What I mean is God's message of salvation. Christ. And I have to say, I've been learning about this gospel, and I'm excited to proclaim some of these things to you as well. But in my learning, I've experienced a lot of heartache over how intense the battle for truth really is. One of my primary responsibilities as your pastor is to warn you and seek to protect you from the deception in the culture and an increasing measure even in the church. And there is a ton of deception on all sides. Now, we know when it comes to the world and its ways, as one brother I highly respect, maybe you've heard about him, maybe you've heard him, Abraham Hamilton III, he says this, he says, the world is going to world. In other words, we can't stop the world's system. We can't transform it. Now, John the Apostle says that the world and its ways is passing away. It's much too big for us. And thankfully, the Lord did not call us to transform culture anyway, did he? Rather, the Lord has called us to engage in a far more important task, and that is to build up the body of Christ. Jesus said that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen? The Lord has given us the privilege of being a part of his building project that's guaranteed to succeed because the Lord will finish what he starts. And so it's my job to do two things with you and for you at Grace United. And the first is to warn us about the deception in the church. And second, equally as important, is to equip you for the work of the ministry. 
And nowhere is this more vital than to correctly understand and rightly handle the gospel, God's message of salvation through Christ. And over the next two weeks, I'm going to take us through what I see is one possible answer as to why the church is overall, the church overall is in the sad state that it's in today. It has to do, in my opinion, in my conviction, in large measure, what passes for the gospel today. I'm increasingly convinced that many who are in positions of great influence in the church of Jesus Christ have either misunderstood or have lost sight of the gospel. Tragically, this skewed perspective has affected and infected many local assemblies all over the world. Because of this, millions of people have misapplied what passes for the gospel in their lives or to their lives. And just as damaging, they've shared this skewed perspective with non-Christians. Lather, rinse, and repeat. Now let me say though, as we begin today, some or even much of what I'm going to proclaim to you may be preaching to the choir, even though we don't have a choir. I'm convinced that many of us in this room understand the gospel, as in the gospel that Jesus and the apostles preached. But I'm equally convinced that not every one of us does. Some of you have joined us in recent days, and I'm glad about that, that the Lord and his sovereignty has brought some of you new folks here. And quite possibly what you're going to hear me proclaim during this mini-series over the next couple of weeks may sound different than what you're used to hearing when it comes to the gospel. And I ask that before you tune me out or even walk away, that you would go with me and stay with me as I attempt to point out and seek to correct some misunderstandings of the gospel as I see things. Some of you have become reconciled to King Jesus over the past year or so, and maybe you need some refreshment or maybe some in-depth instruction as to what the gospel really is. And someone of the sound of my voice may not be reconciled to King Jesus yet. It's my prayer that you will become reconciled to him before we finish our mini-series about the gospel that Jesus preached. And those who have been here for a while, you know that you are welcome at any time to come and talk to me about things that you hear. I'll be the first to admit that I don't have a corner on the truth. And guess what? You don't either, right? See, the Holy Spirit is a spirit of truth. And so we need to learn from one another more understanding about the way, the way of Jesus, way more perfect. And especially as we go through our mini-series, if you think that I'm off track, either by a mile or by a little bit, you need to come talk. In fact, if you detect what I'm proclaiming is not right, you have a responsibility to do so. See, in the book of Acts 17, 10 through 12, Luke points out this very thing, that there was a group of Messianic Christians, Jewish Christians, who didn't automatically take Paul the Apostle's word for things when they encountered him and his teaching. And here's Luke's note about them. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed, and not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So this is what I'm asking you to do over these next couple of weeks especially. Receive the word with eagerness, 
and compare what I say with the scripture and see if it lines up. And if it doesn't, if there's a deviation, then show me. That's a challenge. So what we're about to do, though, kind of reminds me of a hymn that I sang as a young Christian. And yes, I did say hymn. And I even sang it, Kitty and I even sang this hymn from a hymnal of all things. You know what those are? But I don't recall us ever seeing this hymn that I'm thinking of right now, ever, ever a Grace United, since we've been Grace United. But the song is called, I Love to Tell the Story. Maybe some of you have heard of this song. So let me share a few stanzas with you, and maybe those who haven't heard the song might uh, think, hey, that's kind of a cool song. I, I like the words. It goes out like this. I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know it is true. It satisfies my lungs as nothing else. I love to tell the story. Tis pleasant to repeat what seems each time I tell it more wonderfully sweet. I love to tell the story for some have never heard the message of salvation from God's own holy word. And then the third stanza. I love to tell the story for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, t'will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. I love to tell the story, t'will be my theme in glory, to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Isn't that a good song? I love that. It's fantastic. So maybe, Sandra, we can kind of get that on the docket at some point. But with what I've said so far, though, maybe some of you may be asking, why are we going to go through this? With all the problems that the church has, and, and then, Glenn, you claim that we may have a deficient view about the gospel? Aren't there bigger problems than a faulty presentation of it? Didn't Paul say that something along the lines that whether the gospel of Christ was proclaimed in pretense or in truth, that he rejoiced that Jesus was being preached? Isn't that what he said? Why not leave well enough alone? And, and why now? See, this is week 11 since we started the Gospel of Luke. Well, let me attempt to answer this question before I lead us into understanding the gospel that Jesus preached. Simply put, this is a good place to prepare ourselves for what is to come in Jesus' ministry. You might find it odd, but fascinating as I did, as to one of the reasons why Jesus left heaven. He left heaven in some measure, come here so that people would hear and respond to the gospel. Luke 4, 42 and 43 says this. And when it was day, he, Jesus, departed and went to a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, listen to this, I must preach the good news of the kingdom to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Who sent him? Now, Jesus was gaining in popularity here, early days of his ministry, and understandable because of the miracles that he did. Now, Jesus told those who really wanted him to stay with them that he could not stay with them. But he was on a mission given to him by the Father. And what was that mission? To preach the gospel of the kingdom. Isn't that amazing? So in short, we need to more fully understand what Jesus considered as one of his purposes for coming to earth 
if we rightly understand the gospel that he preached, we're going to be in a far better position to apply it to our lives and then to proclaim the true gospel to those who so desperately need to hear it. Amen. So let's begin to flesh out some of Luke's orderly account of the gospel with a little backstory, and that's John's arrest and some of the things surrounding it. And so if you want to turn to Luke chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, you may do so, or just follow along in the manuscript. But Luke 3, 19 and 20, talk about what happened here, about John. And it goes like this, Paul or Luke writes, But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked John up in prison. Now, there's one thing about Luke, the way he wrote the gospel here. He would have us in the moment, and then he would kind of zoom out and give us a big picture of things, make a summary statement. And that's what happened here. John's ministry was very successful. You know, people were coming to him and getting baptized, declaring their repentance while John pointed them to the Messiah that they may be forgiven of their sins. Because again, baptism doesn't forgive. Baptism points people to the Messiah. And this was John's ministry. And then Luke pivots, as it were, and next thing you know, where's John? He's in prison. So let me give you a timeline, though, regarding John's ministry. From the day that John baptized Jesus until John was thrown in prison, it was about a year that elapsed between the two. And that year was busy for Jesus. He was preaching, doing miracles, amassing disciples, whom he later named apostles, and baptizing as well. Now, John in his gospel tells us that John the Baptist and his disciples, as well as Jesus' disciples, were busy baptizing. And for a time, in the same general area, baptisms were happening right and left from John's group and also from Jesus' group. Both groups were doubtless preaching repentance, for that is what John did. There was no contradiction as to what John did and what Jesus' disciples did. Can we agree with this? And then came the day when John was arrested. A year later. And Matthew writes this in his gospel about this very thing in Matthew 4, 12 to 13. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, about 70 miles north of Jerusalem. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Mark says basically the same thing in Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so what we have here is something extremely important as I lay a foundation that we might understand the gospel that Jesus preached. First, Matthew and Mark describe the gospel in a certain way. The gospel of the kingdom of heaven and the gospel of God. It's the same thing. It means it's the good news of the kingdom or belonging to God. Belonging to the kingdom of heaven. And notice also that after John was put in prison, Jesus took up John's mantle 
and he proclaimed repentance. For repent and believe the gospel. Jesus proclaimed the need for people to repent and believe the gospel. It was not enough just to believe. They needed to repent as well. And Jesus was not the only one, though, who preached the gospel. Luke wrote that John proclaimed it before he was arrested. And part of his proclamation of the good news of the gospel included hellfire. Now, how is that good news? We'll talk about that. And Jesus, or John, pointed people to Jesus, as it says in Luke 3.18. In Matthew 10 and Mark 6, Jesus sent out 72 of his disciples and commanded them to preach the gospel. And that preaching involved repentance. In Matthew 26, we find the story of Mary anointing Jesus with the finest of perfume right before he was crucified. Some of the disciples, led by who else? Judas protested Mary doing this. And, and they considered it wasteful. Mary, why are you spending all this money on Jesus? See, she could have fed a whole lot of people with the money if she would have just sold that perfume and given it to the poor. But Jesus commended her and told everybody there that her act of extravagant love to Jesus was to be told whenever the gospel was proclaimed. So, okay, here's what we have so far. John the Baptist preached the gospel and told people about Messiah and their need to get ready for him. This was a baptism of repentance unto the forgiveness of sins found in Messiah. So let me stop right here and ask the question, what is the gospel that Jesus proclaimed? And is this gospel that Jesus proclaimed in any way, shape, or form different than the apostles proclaimed, including Paul? Now, if I was to ask you personally, one-on-one, what the gospel is, my guess is that you would say something like this. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We've heard this, right? 1 Corinthians 15, 1, 3, and 4, Paul says, this is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. This is what we hear. And by the way, this is what I heard. (laughs) When I came to Christ, way back in the day, 1976. So I ask again, when Jesus commanded his people to repent and believe the gospel, what was it he told them to believe? Was it a prediction about his own death, burial, and resurrection? Or was it something else? It is my conviction that Jesus did not call people to repent and believe in his coming death and resurrection. Certainly he did predict this, but not at first. And when he predicted this first, the first time he told people about his death and resurrection, it wasn't made to the general public. It was made to a group of people, a different group of people than we might think. And so you might be asking, how can I say this? Well, I say this because the Bible says it. So if you will, turn with me to Matthew chapter 16 beginning at verse 13, and we're going to read about the very first time Jesus predicted plainly about his upcoming death and his resurrection. Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Verses 15 to 17. He said to them, 
but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And then skip down to verses 20 and 21. Then he strictly charged them, his disciples, to tell no one that he was the Christ. And now get this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. That was the first time Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. So I have two questions. To whom did Jesus first predict he was going to die and rise again? Answer, those who already were his disciples. Those who had already repented and believed the gospel. Second, at what point in his ministry did Jesus tell this to his disciples? Well, those who are into chronologies, especially the chronology of Jesus, the life of Jesus, say that Jesus told his disciples who already believed the gospel, about a year prior to his crucifixion. That's when Jesus unveiled this. So let me be quick to point out, though, that after Christ rose again, he commanded his disciples to tell others of his death and resurrection. That's true. But that wasn't at the first. It wasn't at the beginning when he told people to believe the gospel. And so, hence, that's what we talk about. When we think about uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Yes, Paul believed that and Paul preached that. But the gospel that Jesus told people to believe was not that, not at first. So back to my conviction. The gospel that Jesus preached in the days of his ministry did not center on his death and resurrection. It just didn't. And so it begs the question. If the gospel that Jesus preached in the days of his ministry was not centered on his death and resurrection, then what was it centered on? And why is it crucial we understand this? And by the way, a reminder, good Bible study requires that we not ask the question, what does the Bible mean? Good Bible study requires that we ask the question, what did the Bible mean to those who first heard? So that's what we want to do here. So let me walk through what people back in the day understood the term gospel to mean and then apply that to Jesus and his preaching of the gospel. Gospel meant good news. And usually it meant that a conquering hero accomplished a mission. Now, one such gospel was that of Augustus Caesar. Augustus Caesar had a gospel, and people preached that gospel. This is a description found in Priyan, a place in southwest Turkey, modern southwest Turkey. Now, when we're talking here about Augustus, you know, gospel, it wasn't so much of what he conquered, it's what the term providence had given the Roman Empire. And this is the gospel. And it reads something like this. Since providence has set in motion, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sent him, providence sent him, as a savior, both for us and our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearing, surpassing all previous benefactors, the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings, 
the gospel for the world that came by reason of him. That was the gospel of Augustus Caesar. Rome recognized Augustus Caesar as a hero given to the empire by providence. And his birthday was the beginning of the good tidings. It was the gospel for the world. In other words, the gospel heralded the king. And in Augustus' case, it was the birth of a god. And Augustus was that god. Well, Rome, sorry to burst your gospel bubble. Because Israel's Messiah was predicted to come hundreds of years prior. Isaiah's heralding the gospel for Messiah goes something like this. If you want to turn back in Isaiah 52, 7 through 10, you may be to do so or follow along in the manuscript. And here's what Isaiah says about the Messiah and the gospel. How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news. What is that? Gospel. Who publishes peace? Who brings good news? Gospel of happiness. Who publishes salvation? Again, let me stop here real quick. When Simeon held Jesus in his arms, what did he say? My eyes have seen your what? My salvation. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchman. They lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. Remember his birth? The watchman sang for joy. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Remember Anna talking about waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. Remember Simeon saying, my eyes have seen salvation. It is salvation for the Gentiles, the nations, as well as the Jews. When Jesus proclaimed the gospel, this is what he meant. Again, Jesus preached to Jews. They knew their Bible. The people knew that Messiah was coming at some point. And no doubt Jesus expounded on this very passage to the people and explained to them that he was the one Messiah talked about. The vital sentence cannot be overstated. Our God reigns. So let's draw some obvious truth out here with this. First is the phrase, your God. And what a comfort this was to them. Back in the day, what happened with Israel? What happened to the Jews? There was a separation between Yahweh and Jews, right? Yahweh, though, had not abandoned his people. He was ever faithful to keep his promises. In Messiah, he came to his wayward people, and Jesus commanded repentance to the people. Return to the Lord was Jesus and John's proclamation to the Jews. Now, why was that? Why was repentance preached? Simply put, God made a covenant with his people centuries earlier. Yahweh did not abandon Israel, but Israel abandoned Yahweh. And now in Messiah, God was calling them back. Yet again, over and over again, God would call them back to the prophets. The prophet Isaiah declared this to his people in chapter 1, verses 18 and 20. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they shall, though they, they shall become like wool, though they were red like crimson. 
If you're willing in obedience, you shall eat the good of the land. In other words, repent. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How often did God call his people to return to him, the people he already had a covenant relationship with? In Messiah, this is yet one more time among many. But this time, with the coming of Messiah, Jesus is God's time to move his plan of eternal salvation, to give the gospel, to give salvation to the nations. It was time to move that forward. Second thing I want to point out is the word reigns. Our God reigns. And that means what? Someone rules. Absolutely. Unmitigated power. It's a king. And so when Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom, this is what he meant. The God of Israel reigns. And Jesus was declaring himself to be that king. So let me sort of tie up any loose ends here in case you haven't gotten it. Let's revisit Mark 1, 14 and 15. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So again, let me give you some features of the gospel that Jesus preached. The time has come. All the prophecies about Messiah and his kingdom were now embodied in the one proclaiming the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. The rulership of God is here. Jesus commanded them to repent, to reorient their lives and live loyally to the king alone. And Jesus was that king. Further, Jesus commanded them to believe the gospel. Isaiah 52, 7 style, your God reigns. And so if we were listening in, on Jesus' proclamation of the gospel back in the day, I'm relatively sure we would hear something like this. Listen up, Israel. The time has come. I am the embodiment of the prophecies about the coming kingdom of God. The kingdom is now here. It begins with me. I am Messiah. I am king. Repent and obey my word. I believe this is what the gospel was preached, that Jesus preached that gospel. And so as we go through the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see Jesus proclaim his authority that the Father had given him over and over again. And that he will command repentance of all people, not just religious hypocrites. And we will see the tender mercy and the steadfast love of God who has not abandoned his people. And all of this and so much more is wrapped up in the Gospel that Jesus preached. So today I laid a foundation that I'm convinced that many, though, have moved away from in the church. Many will say that the gospel Jesus preached, which includes submission to the Lord's authority and repentance from sin, was prior to the birthday of the church. And since that time, the gospel is all about a simple faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Isn't that nice? The need for people to repent somehow negates the gospel of grace. Maybe you've heard that before. Also, the idea that Jesus is king and he would refer himself to himself as Lord is a dangerous idea at best, they would say. See, if we're not very careful, we will end up adding good works to our salvation, is what they'll say. You know, the term lordship salvation was coined to this, to describe this. 
let me ask with all the care and conviction that I have. If Jesus is not Lord, then who is he? If the Lord, the God-man, is not the Savior, then who died on the cross and rose again? If the Lord does not save, then who does? If Jesus is the Son of God and God the Son, the Savior of the world, then he has every right to command obedience of everybody. Am I right? So is Lordship salvation true salvation? Well, given what we've seen in our study today, I have to say, how can it not be? Messiah is Lord. Messiah is Savior. Therefore, anyone who would be a Christian must submit to the Lordship of Christ, or one is not saved. Now, there are many things we can and we need to talk about, and next week we're going to bring all this to bear on what passes for the gospel today in the estimation of many. So let me leave us with challenge. What gospel do you believe if you believe in the gospel? Does it involve repentance from sin and point toward Jesus the Messiah? Or have you embraced another gospel, a gospel that does not save? As we will see the gospel Jesus preached, this gospel excludes no one. His is the gospel of the kingdom. His death, burial, and resurrection did what? Cleared the way for all to be saved. Jesus died for all the sins of every person from Adam on down to the last person who would ever be born of woman. This happened in real space and an actual time on a real cross. Jesus was placed in a real tomb and having been raised from the dead, he felt the cold stone under his feet. Jesus said, it's finished. And the father said, I'm satisfied. Because the father is satisfied with the payment for our sin, the father has given to his son, the nations, all of them. Psalm 289 says, Ask of me, the Father says to the Son, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In other words, King Jesus owns us. Every one of us. He purchased all of us and therefore he can do whatever he wants with any of us. In his mercy and in his kindness and his grace, King Jesus extends salvation to all who would turn from their sin and become reconciled to him. And we know what reconciled means, don't we? It's when two people who were enemies become friends. That's reconciliation. Paul says in Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And when did Christ die for us? Were you born yet? No. He already died for your sins. Already, all of them. So if you think that you know, it was unfair of God to do, to do that, guess what? Too late. He's already done it. Paul also says to those in the church in Corinth who were not Christians, and there were many of them in the church of Corinth who weren't Christians. Second Corinthians 5.20 
Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of God. Be on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. God owns all. Christ owns the nations. His hand of mercy is extended. Many of us have been reconciled to the king, but some have not. And like Paul, I implore you, be reconciled to God. But his hand of mercy will not be extended forever. A day is coming when the nail-scarred hand of Jesus will no longer be extended and his wrath will be poured out. As I close the message today, let me ask, if you were to die today, you didn't have time to prepare, suddenly, you had no time to get ready, where will you be? Not where you would like to be, not where, where you think you would be, but where would you be? Will you be relieved as you are shielded from the wrath of God? Or will you face his wrath full force? See, the time to get reconciled to Jesus is now. Not later. Have you repented of your sin? I'm not talking about living a perfect life. I'm talking about getting your life reoriented toward him. Have you embraced King Jesus, grateful for his sacrifice on your behalf? Are you truly grateful for what he has done for you? And are you following him loyally? So now let's take a moment and ask the Lord to examine us and to help us examine our own selves to see whether we are in the faith. To be assured that the gospel that you believe in is the gospel that Jesus preached. Or is it a gospel of something else or someone else? A gospel that does not save. So let's just take a moment and ask the Lord. Make it personal. Where am I, Lord? Where am I? If I was to die right now, would I be with you, enjoying your presence, like cotton is today? Or would I be facing your wrath? Because when we're on the other side, it's too late. Let's go before the Lord. King Jesus, merciful, kind, Almighty King Jesus, the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, the one whose nail-scarred hand has been extended to us in salvation, offering salvation to us, the one who says, come to me, the one who says, I will embrace you. But in order to come to you, we, that implies that we're not with you. And Lord, for all those within the sound of my voice, maybe even here in this room, some of us may not have been reconciled to you. Some of us may, Lord, have not been have not turned to you. We're still doing our own thing. We're still thinking, even as Brother James had talked about, and, and as he uh, reminded us what Moses' words and, and, and your words to Moses said today, I'm safe even though I'm going to walk in the stubbornness of my own heart. Lord, could you please melt the hearts of those who are like that? Lord, all of us were there at one point 
in various degrees. But Lord, those of us who have come to you, have repented and turned to you, knowing, Lord, that you died for our sins, you were raised again, and now you're king, and now you're Lord. Lord, our desire, more than anything else, is to please you. Lord, you've not called us to live a perfect life, but one that's loyal to you. Lord, in a sense, we're married to you. No other lovers, no idols, just one person in our minds and hearts and in our eyes, and that's you, Lord. We are grateful for what you've done for us. We're thankful for what you've done for us. And may we show our gratitude by the way that we live. And Lord, may we keep short sin accounts with you because, Lord, we know that sin displeases you. We don't want that. We don't want that for ourselves. And we certainly don't want to just show the world as we claim Christian to be Christians, then we, we go out and sin all the time. But Lord, please help us. We desire, Lord, to be pleasing to you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for living the life that you did to make the way clear so that people like us could be reconciled. People like us could be glorified later. We thank you and we praise you. And now I pray, Lord, that as we turn our attention to yet a couple more acts of worship, may our acts of worship be pleasing in your sight. And we'll give you thanks and we'll give you praise for what you will do here with this word. Seal it to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name.